Please have your Bible, Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, this passage is a passage that gives us assurance of the certainty of the Word of God as it prophesies about the coming of the King, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll find out again from this passage how good God is, how sure His word is, how worthy of our trust because He fulfilled all His promises and He accomplished everything that He has promised. Now, after the morning service, I was thinking that I need to slash one third of my sermon because <laughs> Pastor Ian used more or less the same words that I <laughs> wrote here and we didn't discuss before. A bit of the context. I think it's very important to have in our minds the context of what's going on here in Isaiah chapter 7, 8 and 9 because this is the conclusion of a section that starts in chapter 7 verse 1. And uh, What's happening here? Ahaz is the king of Judah. And he is facing a coalition, an alliance between uh, Israel and Syria. By this time, Israel and Judah, they were two king separate kingdoms. And uh, they want Ahaz to join their coalition. Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to do it. At the same time, he is thinking of, thinking of joining a coalition with Assyria, which is the global power at that time in that region of the world. So, obviously Syria and Israel, they are not happy with Ahaz's decision. They come against uh, Jerusalem, they didn't start the war against it uh, yet, but in the midst of these problems, Ahaz's heart and the heart of the people of Judah, uh, they were troubled in their hearts. And, uh, and Isaiah said in, says in verse 2 of chapter 7 that they were moved as trees of the woods are moved with the wind. They were trembling out of fear because of the uncertainty of what life lies ahead. And through the whole chapter 7, the Lord gives Isaiah a message from, for Ahaz and the people. And he recognized that there is a lot of fear there, a lot of uncertainty. But the Lord tells Ahaz, do not fear for, those, for these two stubs of smoke in firebrands they will disappear. In 65 years, they will disappear. Ephraim will be broken. But the Lord says, if you don't believe, surely you shall not be established. And uh, of course, Ahaz didn't listen to the Lord. The Lord, as we heard this morning, told him, ask for a sign. Ahaz refuses. And uh, 
it's a very difficult situation for the whole nation of Judah, Israel, for Ahaz, and for everyone who is involved. Is Isaiah is preaching to these people who are fearful. Ahaz, their king, rejected the Lord's counsel. But the Lord didn't reject his people. But because the people and Ahaz, their king, rejected the counsel of the Lord, there will be some consequences. And in chapter 8, the Lord is uh, addressing Isaiah and he's giving him instruction which are in contrast to what the people are doing under Ahaz's leadership. And again, the Lord says, Him you shall follow. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. But the people are not listening, and darkness and destruction follow Ahaz's rejection of the counsel of the Lord and the instruction of the Lord. And in verse 22, the last verse of chapter 8, the word of God says, Then they will look to the earth, and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. So, this is the image, this is the context. They look to the earth, they look to Assyria, they look to human wisdom, they look to human ingenuity and they excluded the instruction of the Word of God. And any time, any time, when we value our wisdom more than God's instructions, it is guaranteed that thick darkness, thick darkness follows. And this is what happened. But chapter 9, verse 1 says, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And continues. And it's a promise of victory. And what's the reason? Because in, from verse 1 to verse 5, the message is about victory and what's 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 the reason for these glorious promises of, of, of victory and verse 6 says for unto us a child is born unto us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder all of a sudden all those titles take on because Yes, Ahaz, Judah, Israel, they live in fear. They, live, they are going through troubled times. But within those problems, within those troubles, God gives assurance and gives a promise. Gives a promise. And he says, trust me. Yes, times are uncertain, you have a lot of problems, 
but I'm not uncertain. Trust me, I'm good. I'll take care of you and I will ultimately bring you to glory. And the foundation of all these promises that we see here rests in a single person, a child. A single child. And as we heard this morning, the promise of this child was announced roughly 700 years before the child was born. But Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And this evening, from verse 6, we will consider this child, the Christ, who will save those who are waiting for him. The Christ who is the fulfillment of God's promises concerning the problem of his people. The one who will deliver his people from the dark into the light of the glory of God. And first we'll see that Christ is the Savior. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the emphasis here is on verse, uh, on, on this verse the emphasis on, on the word a child. But you see, verse 5 says, For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in the blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. And there is a promise of victory here. And we, we, we read that the equipments of the war are destroyed and Obviously there is a war, and when we think about the war, we think about someone who is great, a magnificent world leader, military leader. But Isaiah talks about a child. Who was that? In God's wisdom, he prepared a child for us. And we could ask ourselves, a child for us? It doesn't make sense. A child to save us from our sins. A child for us, a child born of flesh. And at the same time, a son is given. It's given by the Lord. A particular son. The son of God. And John in chapter 3 verse 16 says, well, who is this child? Who is this child? Who is this son? Well, John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, the Son given is a Son who could secure perfect righteousness for the unrighteous people. A Son who could accomplish a perfect redemption for the lost. He will be born as a child. That's absolutely clear. He will come in all the normal ways of being human. He will suddenly appear in time and space and history. He comes as a child, not as a fully grown. He will grow up in a neighborhood like most of us. He will be in this world 
as one of us without sin. A child, as a child, he would be born into the covenant line. He will be traced through the line of David. But in the same time, he, he will be born as a child, but he will be given as a son. He will be more than merely human. Whether or not Isaiah's audience would have understood that, we don't know. But Paul in Romans chapter 1 identified the one who is coming as a divine person. He was already the son, the son of God. A son who could secure perfect righteousness and supply perfect redemption for us. God in flesh. And we have a son who could save his people across the ages. God in flesh. The child is the son of God. The child is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the God-man. Christ is the Savior. And from what is he saving his people? Well, if you remember verse 22 in chapter 8, they said they look to the earth and they will be driven into darkness. So Christ saved his people from everlasting darkness. And in, in John chapter 3, after, after verse uh, 16, John records the words of Christ, 19 to 21. He says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth come to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So Jesus Christ, the child, came as the light of the world to deliver those who were in the bondage of thick darkness. So it's very simple. To reject the child, to reject Christ, to reject the Christ is to remain in darkness, in everlasting darkness. It's light or darkness. There is no twilight zone. And the prophecy is fulfilled in Christ. All the promises of, of God are fulfilled in Christ. And we, we saw in the first five verses, all of them t are telling us about the salvation that bring light, bring joy, brings victory. And all of them are found in Christ alone, in the, in the child. So those who are stumbling in darkness, if there is anyone this evening, well, all of those who are, are in darkness are called to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, in the child. Because he came as a child to save his people from their sins. Well, for those who are in Christ, well, we have to rejoice. We have to rejoice because Christ came according to God's promise. We have to rejoice that God saved us from the futility of our mind, from the life outside Christ. So a child was born for us, a son was given, and Christ is the Savior. And then Isaiah continues and said, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Christ is the sovereign. Think about the context in which Isaiah made the prophecy. Judah, Israel, they were both attempting 
to secure, the to secure their future through different political or military alliances, through their ingenuity, outside the Council of the Lord. And the promise here is that this child will bear the responsibility to rule and he will have the whole authority. This is important because think about and observe what Ahaz did. It's a contrast between Ahaz, the human king, and the child. Because Old Testament is preparing us for Christ. We needed a perfect priest. There, was, there wasn't one. We needed a perfect prophet. There wasn't a prophet that was able to fully disclose the radiance of God. We needed the perfect king. We needed the one who rules according to the perfect will of God. And again, there wasn't one. But Christ, this child, fulfills all those. And in Second Chronicles chapter 28, we found about Ahaz again. Verse 16 says, Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria to help him. Later on, we found out that king of Assyria came to him and did not assist him. And then, listen, he did not, the king of Assyria, did not help him. This statement is very blunt and straightforward. But he did not help him. And verse 22 continues and says, Now in the time of his distress... King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. So this is King Ahaz. This king, humanly king, received the responsibility to rule. And he turns away from the Lord to the destruction of his people. In contrast, the sovereign that God promised will rightly and righteously rule his people. Christ is the sovereign. The promised Messiah would hold the whole authority and he would carry all the responsibility of the government on his shoulders. The one who is the savior is also the sovereign. And we see here that conversion means receiving forgiveness from our sins but also coming under the loving rule of Lord Jesus Christ. Paul often says in, 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 in the New Testament, I'm a servant of God. I have a new authority. And the, the New Testament recognized Christ's authority in many places. Matthew chapter 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. And a lot of people are asking, oh, what's the extent of, of his authority? All the authority has been given to me. Romans 14, For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. All the authority is his. Colossians 2, and this is the last quote 
from New Testament at this point. For in him dwells all the fullness of Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. I think it's absolutely clear that he has the whole authority. The government shall be upon his shoulders. He is the eternal king. There is no one like him. Now, from this reality, we could recognize that nothing take, take place in this world outside the authority of Christ. Nothing takes place in this world outside the authority of Christ. And when we think about what, what comfort is this? About above every principalities and power, there is nothing outside, outside of the sovereign reign of the Son of God, of this child. The rise and fall of nations, the policies of the lawmakers, all resigned under the ultimate authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, this child. And what a wonderful liberty this is. That we, the people of God, can go back to Isaiah chapter 8 and take that. He says there, chapter 8, verse 12, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that these people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, Him you should hallow. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. Do we need anything else? Isn't that clear? And the Lord Jesus says, do not fear. Don't fear those who can just kill the body. Our physical life is not the ultimate end. Whether we live or die, we are in God's hands. That's not the ultimate concern. Jesus said, fear him who has the authority to cast the body and soul Should we fear? No. Fear the Lord. That's our ultimate concern. And how liberating is this? In these uncertain times, because we live in uncertain times, not only those in Judah and Ahaz and Israel in that time, but we live in uncertain times. It's so liberating to know that the word of God is sure and it gives us promises that God is going to fulfill. And we know that we have a savior and we have a sovereign. He rules. He reigns. Century after century. And ultimately all things will culminate under his perfect rule. So there is freedom from fear. We don't have to be to fear. But, lastly here, when we consider that Christ is the sovereign, that means that all that Christ commands must be honored. All that Christ commands must be honored. And there is a personal application here for us, very, very simple. John 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, 
and he will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Christ is our sovereign, and we listen to his words. We structure our thinking, our actions, our words by his commands, because we love him, because he is our savior, he is our righteousness, and he is our redeemer. And as we continue, thirdly, we see that Christ is sufficient. Christ is all we need. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Christ alone, nothing else, no one else. Christ is the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, perhaps you are sitting and you're listening and you hear about this Christ, this baby, this child. You think about the darkness that is in your life, in your own soul. You realize that you live a life outside Christ. And while you are thinking about this, you said, hmm, this is fascinating, that's interesting. I might try this Christ, along with, and you fill the blanks, you know. Well, Christ will not allow that, because he is the Savior, he is the Sovereign, and because he is the one who has the fullness of deity in himself. He alone is sufficient for everything, and he does not go along other things or other priorities. In him, we found everything that we need. We found hope, joy, liberation, victory. Outside him, there is darkness and burden. Trying to get your own righteousness is not going to solve the problem. Only in Christ, all these burdens, burdens are gone. And in him, we found joy, liberty, and victory and hope. Christ is sufficient because in Him we found sufficient wisdom, wonderful counselor. In the Old Testament, as you know, quite often the name is an expression of the character of that person. His name in, is the essence of who He is. So, these titles in the second half of verse 6 capture all of those. He'll be a wonder of a counselor, says another translation, a supernatural counselor. He has sufficient wisdom. All the wisdom is in him. And if you turn the page in Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah over there prophesies about a branch. And listen to this. First five verses of chapter 11. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots. Listen now. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. This is the description. These are the qualities of the great counselor. He walks in the spirit of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord rests upon him. The counsel that he gives is the perfect, is in perfect accordance with that of his heavenly father. And there is an ultimate outcome of righteousness and of justice. He will set all things right. This is the wonder of the counselor. This is the supernatural counselor. This is sufficient wisdom and Christ in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And why would we listen to anybody else? If he is sufficient, if in him there is all the wisdom. And uh, Psalm 33 verse 11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generation. It is the counsel of the Lord, it is the supernatural wisdom of God that Christ him, himself embodies. He is sufficient. We have to put our eternal destiny in his hands, in the hands of Lord Jesus Christ, this child that Isaiah is speaking about. Often we are tempted to say, I need something else, I need something more. But being a disciple of Christ is having our thinking restructured according to his wisdom. What we, we, we want the counsel as in Isaiah chapter 8, when they were turning to the dead, when they would turn into the darkness, when Christ is the light. Why? Why would you turn over there when Christ is the light? Christ is sufficient wisdom. He is the wonderful counselor. And secondly, he is the mighty God. He is mighty. He is powerful. He has sufficient power. He is sufficient in wisdom. He is sufficient in power. He is God. He is a man whose chief characteristic is deity. Well, that's power. He created all things. He is mighty God. But how is this ultimately fulfilled in Christ? Well, the scripture tells us, John 16, These things I have spoken to you, verse 33, that in me you may have peace. We have peace in Christ. And listen, I'm not talking about the Prince of Peace. Jesus is going to go and say, look, in this world you will have troubles. Ahaz, our example, was fearful. Uncertain times, uncertain circumstances. Like us. This is the world. This is the world now and it was then. Opposition for, for doing right, for pursuing Christ in the world. But Jesus continued and said, you will have all this kind of tribulation, but take heart. Why? I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. He is sufficient in power. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus is the mighty God. He defeated the power of death. He reigns. He delivers us from thick darkness. He delivers us from the anxiety of the tribulation in this world. And in him we have peace. What are we afraid then? He has power. He is God. He is the mighty God. And his eternal father. We can see that we have, there is sufficient care in him. This is not a title that's describing his role within the uh, Trinity. It's an honorific title applied to, applied to those in various positions of authority. The eternal Son of God became man. The emphasis here is that Christ is eternal, and as eternal, he cares for his people like a father. Unlike our earthly fathers, whom we love, and whom we honor, and who care quite well for us, unlike our earthly fathers, Christ cares for us into eternity and through eternity, because he is eternal. He is everlasting father. And finally, he is the Prince of Peace. Now, think again about the context, about all that was going around in Isaiah's time when Isaiah preached this. This child has the sufficient authority to work out the ultimate peace. And again, New Testament points us to the child, who is Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate form of conflict is that we, in our sin, fight against God. But through Christ, we have peace with God. Christ dealt with sin, which is the root of all conflict. It's absolutely clear. That's the main problem. Colossians chapter 1. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him he reconciled all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. There is a coming day when Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, will make a peace, a final peace. But also, Isaiah in verse 4 of chapter 11 says that he will slay the wicked. The wicked will be separated on that day from the presence of God and placed under the eternal wrath of God. And the righteousness, the righteous, sorry, will be secured in the presence of Lord Jesus in heaven for eternity. 
He will reconcile all things. He will bring peace. And he does it through his cross. His wonderful counselor, mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Well, this is Christ. It is Christ who fulfilled God's promises concerning man's problem. Mankind is in the depth of thick darkness, as those in Isaiah, Isaiah's times were, condemned by its own sin and rejection of God. But Christ is the Savior. This is the good news. The child is Christ and he is the Savior. He is the light of the world. Christ is the sovereign, the one who, to whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. And he is sufficient. In him we have everything that we need. And finally, it's verse 7. And what a majestic verse. It exalts the glory of Messiah's triumphant rule and reign. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. How is going to happen this? The final part of the verse. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. As I said, what a majestic verse. Because it exalts the glory of the Messiah's triumphant rule and reign. It says, it will increase without end throughout all eternity in, in every enlarging expanse of power and peace. And it says, it's installed on the throne of David, the Son of God and the heir of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, is now enthroned in heaven from which he rules. As his kingdom grows, until the final subjects are gathered in. Then he will bring that rule into the new heavens and into the new earth where justice and righteousness will be established. Wow! Wow! Somebody's going to ask now when? Well, the kingdom was inaugurated with the coming of the king, of the child, born in a manger. And God's kingdoms carry on growing until the final day, which will culminate with the final consummation of this world. And there will be a final acknowledgement of the one who has been crowned. Every tongue, every tongue will truly confess that Jesus the child is the Lord. To the glory of the Father, says verse 7. Now, how? Unfortunately, 
we don't have time enough. I was absolutely stunned realizing that the zeal, the passion of God will make this possible. Absol I grew up in a church, but I, I, I never pay attention to this. I, I never realized that, and I'm sorry, I'm just going to say something in a minute. We don't have, this is a, a, a sermon. The zeal of the Lord, the passion of the Lord. Do, how much do we know about the passion of the Lord? Wow. infinite passion of the Lord will accomplish this. And make no mistake, there is nothing in the future that God doesn't know. Because what God said is going to happen. And He knows because He has ordained everything, because His omniscience and His omnipotence is there. He has sovereignly declared it that His kingdom will prevail. And he is passionately about this. And passionately he is exercising his energy to bring it to the past. To, to realize the passion of the almighty God is going to work this. And when we look back to history, we realize that he's doing The kingdom is advancing. It's expanding. And he's going to fulfill every single dot. Because it's him, the mighty God, his passion. His jealousy, all his attributes are involved. We have to conclude now. This passage refers to Messiah. And uh, we have in mind none other than the true son of David, Jesus Christ. This is the child. He is the true king of Israel, and in him alone is to be found the peace that mankind needs. Now, I have two questions for you. Is this how he is known to you? Is this how he is received by you? Think about it, because as I said, it's either light or darkness. There's nothing between. How do you know this child? As a savior or you fill the blanks? May his name be forever blessed. Amen.